0: Our passages in 1 Corinthians chapter one, beginning with verse 18, and going all the way through verse 31. And then I'll read it for us. First 1 Corinthians 1:18, 1, "For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent." Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let's praise. Father, we thank You for Your great Word. And even as we read it, we are being changed by it. We pray that Your Word would not go out void today, but it would return to You having accomplished its purpose, that it would have taken deep root in our hearts, that it would have changed us, convicted us, edified us, that it would uh, transform us more and more into the likeness of Your Son this morning. I pray that You would gift us with discernment through the Holy Spirit, that You would help us to understand this great Word that You have given us. And Lord, may we leave having known and tasted and seen the presence of our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Like you, if you still have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 1, I'm going to be referring back to various portions of this passage as we go through the message this morning. But in what we just read, Paul speaks of the wisdom of man, and specifically he tells us that the Greeks sought after wisdom. But with all the worldly wisdom and the philosophy that the Greeks possessed, they never found God. With all of the so called Golden Age of Greece and the philosophy that they had and Plato's Republic, it was all characterized, if you know anything about that time period in history, by utter decay, chaos, and polytheistic worship. That was the Golden Age of Greece. The so-called summit of man's wisdom led him to self-exaltation and ultimately despair. And Paul says in our passage, man's wisdom can't even compare with the foolishness of God. And I think we're in a world like that today. There are people throughout our society who advertised wisdom. We're told by the humanistic and the New Age movements that we can look into ourselves and find God. Buddhism says, cross your legs, meditate on a rock, a flower, and a cup of water, and you can find God. Islam says, pray three times towards Mecca every day and live humbly, and you can find God. In fact, never before in the history of mankind have there been so many people running around saying, here's God, no, there's God, here's God, and yet none of them have found God. And it isn't because He isn't there. But God will not be found except through the avenue through which He has described in His Word. And verse 21 of this passage tells us that in the wisdom of God, which means according to God's divine plan, the world through wisdom, its own wisdom, did not know God. The smarter men think that they are, the more foolish they are in reality. The great paradox is that it actually pleases God as verse 21 tells us, to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. The foolishness of the cross. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he uses the phrase the foolishness of God? I can understand when human beings talk about foolishness because I see it every day and I certainly have a long and accurate memory of all the foolish things that I have done. But I cannot for the life of me conceive of how God, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, could be foolish. And yet, here it is in Scripture. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What could possibly be God's foolishness? Well, let's start at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis and Exodus. Can you think of one of the first foolish men? I would suggests one of the first foolish men was Noah. It wasn't that long ago that a documentary was shown on television about a trip to Mount Ararat. They continue to do this every few decades where they can get permission from the Turkish government. But uh, Mount Ararat is where, it is believed, was discovered uh, at least evidence of Noah's ark. And there, this person has said that he has seen encased in ice an enormous hunk of wood. Now, at 14,000 feet, the person doing the documentary and several others think they've seen a a structure that measured at least 450 feet long, and there's not a tree in sight on the upper face of Ararat, and yet there is, they say, an extremely large boat-like structure up there. And as the person said on the documentary, either it's Noah's Ark or it's the largest Turkish outhouse ever built. <laughs> I'm not in a position to debate the findings of whether Noah's Ark was found, but there was a man named Noah in history, and the Lord said to him, Build a tavakh," which in Hebrew means a box. He didn't say actually build an ark because that's the romantic word the King James translators used in 1611 that conveys the image of a ship. It wasn't so romantic as that. Noah built what amounts to a fairly large rectangular box. And so Noah started to build this box and you can imagine the reaction of the neighbors. What are you doing, Noah? You and your sons. Oh, we're building a box. Really? Really? How big? How come? Well, it's going to be pretty big. That's for the reason, why well, I talked to the Lord recently and the creator of the universe told me that there's going to be a, a lot of water around here soon. Oh? Noah, look around you. We're in the middle of a desert. It's like building a sailboat in your basement. How are you going to get it to the water? Did you forget that the river's that way? Well, you know, God told me To build it here, I'm not going to build it. Do you talk with God regularly? And that went on for years and years. The crazy old man and his family hammering, sawing, and building a box, and everyone laughed at Noah, foolish Noah, until it started to rain. And then people were not laughing anymore, and God flooded the world with water, and the result was Noah's box up on a Turkish mountain. In Colorado, while our family was digging for dinosaur bones... Some years ago, we learned that buried in the same layer of dirt or land and marine animals, the same layer, mind you, which suggests that they were buried at the same time, ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs with brachiosaurs and allosaurs. In fact, at the same site, across—I don't know if you've seen the Vision Forum video about uh, raising the allosaur. Well, we saw where that site was; it was just across this little ravine from us. Just directly across from that, we were trying to unearth a a skull, but just around the corner, about 500 yards away, was a huge field of squid fossils. Now how could that happen? The flood. Noah built his box, and he built it in the face of every argument, every criticism, every bit of man's wisdom that laughed at the prospect of a flood, and he spent 120 years building that box, and then he got inside, and everybody laughed until. Now I can think of another foolish man. His name was Abraham. In the midst of a comfortable life, God said, walk before me and be perfect. To which Abraham responded, well, what do you want me to do? Pack up all your belongings, go into the desert with your wife, Sarah. And later, Abraham would ask, anything else? Yes, I want you to get ready because when I come back, Sarah is going to be pregnant. And the scripture says that Abraham did not stagger at the promise of God. And to me, that's a fantastic statement that he did not stagger at the promise of God. After all, a man pushing 100 with a wife pushing 90 has got to have a little doubt in his mind, perhaps. And the people might have come and asked, what are you doing so far from your people, Abram? Well, he would respond, actually, my name's not Abram anymore. It's Avraham, which means, in my language, a father of a nation of people. Really? Do you have a lot of children? No, not one. But I will have a vast number of descendants someday, and Sarah is going to be pregnant. Really? And how do you know that? The Lord spoke to me. Who? The Lord. El Shaddai, the maker of heaven and earth, God of gods, King of kings, the Lord of glory, the sovereign of the universe, the only God. And I am going to become the father of many nations. And my children will be so numerous that they will be as the sands of the Jordan shoreline. I will be remembered for eternity. Can you imagine the reaction? But from one couple God ordained the Davidic and Solomonic thrones, and through them came Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in whom all the nations have been blessed, as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the heavens. Why? Why? because one man dared to believe absolute foolishness and did not stagger at the promise of God. You will become the father of many nations. Why? How? Because it is only sufficient that I say so, and it doesn't matter what the nations say in their supposed wisdom. There are a lot of people in this world who think that we are foolish. We who proclaim that the only way of salvation is Jesus Christ, And it doesn't make a difference what the world says. And I want you children to hear this this morning. The only thing that makes a difference is what God has said. That is the foolishness. The foolishness in quotes, of course, of the cross. Noah believed the foolishness of God. Build a box where there was no water. Abraham believed the foolishness of God. Pack up and go into the desert and I will make you the father of many nations. And of course, we cannot forget Moses. Moses led the Israelite people out of the land of Egypt, and we know the story of how they got to the shores of the Red Sea and how the Egyptian Pharaoh changed his mind and pursued them with the armies of Egypt. The Pharaoh suddenly got to thinking how he must have been crazy to have let them go that day and how he needed to work his revenge for what had been done to his family. And so he gathered his army, went after the Israelites, and when the The group of people were caught between the army and the desert and the Red Sea. They cried out and asked, what are we going to do? And Moses said, don't worry. You need to get everybody ready and walk up to the edge of the water. Are we going to swim? Nope. Just walk over and wait. But the army is coming. Shouldn't we maybe run or get ready to fight? Shouldn't we put the men in front and the women behind? Shouldn't we have them start swimming across? No. Just wait. I'm going to lift up my staff and the waters are going to part. Two million people that day walked to the shore of the water and an 80-year-old man lifted up his staff and the waters parted. So many people are skeptical of whether this really happened or not, but God who spun a billion galaxies into place and holds all things together by the force of his will and word can part the Pacific Ocean like an envelope if he wants. In comparison, the Red Sea is just a drainage ditch of the Mediterranean. It's true that the critics have had fun with this one. They They say there must have been a a strong east wind, and that it was the Sea of Reeds, and it must have been marshy, and and Moses and two million Israelites actually crossed through ankle-deep water. That, actually, I would argue, must have been the true miracle because people who argue like that in their attempt to reject the supernatural actually give us something more unbelievable than we would have ever asked because, according to them, the entire Egyptian army drowned in six inches of water. (laughs) So... Noah, build a box where there is no water. Abraham, go into the desert. Your wife is going to have a baby. You will become the father of many nations. Moses, lift up your staff and I'll take care of the Red Sea. And there were others, weren't there? Throughout the Old Testament, there were people like Joshua at Jericho. There was Elijah with the prophets of Baal. Every single instance foolish, irrational, unreasonable has nothing to commend itself to the wisdom of man and yet that is the way that the Lord desires to work. Everything contrary to what is experiential and seemingly obvious and yet God demands it as a condition because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And what is that foolishness, friends? It is divine wisdom and might demanding faith. God demands that we believe in that which we have not seen on the basis that He said so. And you want to know one more piece of foolishness that is greater than all the foolishness that we've examined this morning? And what I'm thinking is more foolish than Noah or Abraham or Moses or Joshua and anything else we find in the Old Testament. The greatest foolishness of all is this that God saved His people through a Jewish carpenter who died outside the walls of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago, whom He personally resurrected and enthroned at His own right hand, saying, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You, and all the angels of God will worship You, and I will cause Your enemies to be made a footstool at Your feet. And at the mention of Your name, the universe will bow, and they will proclaim You, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to My eternal glory. That, my friends, is the foolishness that God has told us to go into all the nations and preach to all the people. Preach the foolishness of God. Preach the illogical and the irrational. What men will call madness, for what they call foolishness, He says, I call wisdom. What they call illogical is the zenith of logic. For God has ordained that this foolishness is to save men and women in the preaching of the cross. Paul says that this message is not only foolish, he says it is a stumbling block. In another passage in Galatians, he actually says it is a scandal. Why? Because if Paul preached what his audience wanted to hear, rules and regulations... They would have been happy and he would not have been persecuted, he says. But if he had done that, then the offense of the cross, the scandal, the foolishness of the cross, the demand for faith would have been abolished. The cross is a stumbling block? Absolutely. There's no wonder that so many churches across our nation are now devoid of any religious symbols like crosses, Stained glass windows, pews, so as not to offend. I'm not saying that those are necessarily sanctified uh, objects of church facilities. I'm just saying, isn't it amazing how, in the last several decades, so much of what used to be a common parts of church architecture has been disappearing? And the reason why is the most important thing because the environment is now less intimidating, right? And more visually stimulating, often with multiple video screens and drama and dance and skits, and the pastors wear polo shirts to set the audience at ease, and they pace back and forth as they speak, all in all, a very distracting environment. And one author writes that the purpose is actually to keep people off balance, and and that's precisely what happens. There is, however, one way to completely avoid the persecution from an unbelieving world and that is to remove the cross from the message and you will remove the offense. Omit the great truths that explain the reason for the cross and you will eliminate the opposition that it will induce and thus remove the foolishness of the message preached. That is precisely what so much of the modern American evangelical church has done. It has gutted the word of the cross in a deliberate attempt to remove its offense. It has taken a foolish message and made it reasonable and made it practical. And in so doing, those who employ it have stripped it of its life-giving power and rendered it often inoperative as far as making true saints of God. The very power to raise men from their death in sin and transgression has often been discarded in an attempt to make the message palatable to those who have no relish for truth in the first place. The harsh reality of the entire matter is that the proponents of this philosophy, whether they realize it or not, are, as John MacArthur has said, ashamed of the Gospel. They're not ashamed to promise their hearers life and peace. What they're ashamed of is declaring to sinners the reasons why they need that life in the first place. And I sometimes wonder, is it, is it, any, is it any wonder that the masses stream to churches who proclaim a deluded gospel and its proponents report exponential growth in their congregations? You are very blessed to hear the foolishness of the cross here in this church. So many do not hear the foolishness of the cross. So many messages contain nothing in it to offend the congregation in the least. And thus, as a result, it neither disturbs the lost sinner's peace nor does it alarm in the slightest his slumbering conscience. He can sit there in perfect tranquility, never once being confronted with the reality of his own perilous condition nor with the character of the great God in heaven and earth with whom we must deal. And conviction of our own lostness, therefore, is often lost and conspicuously absent. And since that truth is unexposed, doesn't shine too deeply in the heart, it makes many quite content to sit there and receive all kinds of practical and relevant sermons. A person can respond positively that they're a Christian in the Popular sense of the word, one who attends church regularly and believes in God, but I'm afraid so many will go out the way they came in, still captive slaves. Oswald Chambers once warned, and and this is a quote to remember, we must never confuse our desire for people to accept the gospel with creating a gospel that is acceptable to people. And friends, what I suggest is how we define the problem will define our gospel. If the big problem in the universe is our lack of self-esteem, if it's finding that good person within myself, if the great question is how can we fix society, the gospel will often be a set of moral agendas complete with a list of approved candidates. But how often do we discuss the big problem as defined by Scripture which is the wrath of God against sin. God has answered that problem with the foolishness of the cross. Now friends, I want you to look once more at the end of 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. What that's saying and this is sometimes hard for us to accept, is that we were foolish. We were weak. We were despised. We were nothing until God chose us. And God did choose us, making these vessels of clay and infusing within them, imparting to them His Holy Spirit so that the excellency of their glory might be of God and not of us. So that we might be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So that right now, at this very moment, we stand in His presence just as if we had never sinned. We stand in grace, holy and complete. And that is the good news of the foolishness of the God that we serve. Jesus Christ loved us while we were yet sinners, and His foolishness was that we would be born again. And we are to be passionate, friends, about that message. Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be ineffectual. But Christ sent me to preach the truth of redemption, the foolishness of God. And when men say, that's foolish what you're saying, When men say that's illogical, when they say that's not feasible, remember what God said. You look at the things of the world through the tinted glass of sin. But I'm going to tell you, says God, the way that it truly is. And that is this. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to raise up the foolish, the weak, and the base in order that he might shame the self-wise, the self-strong, and the self-important. Are you passionate about this message? We often see dedication and abandonment to God as an obligation. A difficult yoke that He would put on us. We want to give ourselves to God, but not fully. We want to moderate our commitment, never realizing that God actually gives us Fullness of joy when we give up everything. And Jesus said, The last shall be first. He who is empty shall be filled. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. And not just life, but life abundantly. When I think upon those things, I'm reminded of Presbytery. A couple months ago, I was with my family in motel. We were watching the championship game of uh, the Eastern Conference basketball finals. The game... One of the games, I forget which number it was, it was won in the last second. There was not a silent voice in the Colosseum. The loudest, think about this, the loudest, most impassioned place on the face of earth was a basketball arena. Thousands of people were at a basketball game and they were not thinking about an obligation to be joyous. Nor was every fan cheering in the same way. Some were waving signs, others were clapping, others were cheering with their voices, still others were covered with paint. The point is that all were, in their way, passionately and immoderately excited. After all, this was the NBA semifinals. Does something sound wrong with that? NBA playoffs, eternal salvation putting a little round ball through a metal hoop, standing in the presence of the Lord of lords and King of kings, watching men run up and down a rectangular court, being rescued from eternal death and invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We should be the most passionate people on earth. Our love for God, our commitment to Him and others, our lives should be hot and zealous for the ways of God, and that should be evident in our worship and in our work in our every action. And we may not all express our passion in the same ways or even in the same measure, but we will be zealous for our God. I think sometimes we're not passionate because we're not embracing the right message. We're not embracing the foolishness of the cross. We don't see God as the God whose throne is above the world. We don't see Him as the God who is holy, who is eternal, who is wrathful against sin, who is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, who created all things, and by whose will all things exist. We don't see Him as Moses saw Him, recorded in Psalm 90, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or wherever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God." We don't see him as he revealed himself to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46 9. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet even done. Do you want to become a passionate people? Do you want to become a passionate people? Don't measure yourselves by the world or even by the church. Measure yourselves by the holy standards of God, and then realize that God did the unfathomable, the unthinkable, the foolish. The transcendent God of the universe condescended to become man, to die the death of a servant, of a condemned criminal on a cross for you. For you. The one who lives forever and ever, whose very name means I am. The one for whom a thousand years is as a day. The one who is not bound as we are by a watch or calendar. He loved and died for you. And our faith is not a religion of fear, nor is it of pride since the foolishness of the Scriptures teach us that we are not saved because of anything that is in us, because it teaches us that God actually raised up the weak and the despised and the base to shame that which is strong and wise in the world's eyes, we have to realize that there was nothing in us as we were that motivated the Lord to save us. There was what we would become, what He would make us, that motivated God to save us. We look to a Savior who calls the dead from the tomb when they still reek of their sins. A Savior who promises never to leave or forsake us even when we go astray. Who promises to intercede for us daily and whose righteousness has been imputed to us. His blood-stained righteousness superimposed over our own righteousness which the Bible says is his filthy rags. That's the foolishness of God. We look to a good shepherd who will lose none of his sheep And who declares, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will lose none of them, but will raise them all up on the same day. Resurrected to eternal eternity in the presence of God. That is the foolishness of God. We look to a Savior who was crucified, but who conquered death and the grave, who rose again, who ascended into heaven and even now is ruling and reigning, and all the while interceding for us. The King of glory interceding for us. That is the foolishness of God. We look to the one Jesus Christ who came to do for us the very thing that we could not do for ourselves. He came in to seek and save that which was lost. And He said, unless I wash of you, unless I wash you completely, you cannot be saved. That is the foolishness of God. We look to the one who sought us out while we were stranded. And about to be consumed by sin. The sin that crouched outside the door. Remember God said it's like a a roaring lion waiting on the prowl to devour us. But the Good Shepherd came. And that is the foolishness of God. That the sinless Son of God died upon a Roman cross for our sins, rose from the dead for our justification, and made us alive through His Word and all the while while we were dead in sin. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Be passionate Christians. Be zealous for that message because it is the only message that will be the salvation of sinners. Let's pray. Father, You are an amazing God. And as we read through the Bible, we sometimes must think, as we, as we look at what You asked Your people to do, march around a city for seven days and then blow trumpets. Raise a staff against a, a wide and deep river in the face of an approaching army. Build a, a box because it will rain and flood the earth. When we look at these and, and we think about ourselves in these places, I, I wonder, Father, if we would all be as bold as Your people. Would we have had the same trust in what seemed like foolishness? Oh, Father, You ask us today to preach the Gospel. You ask us today to know only Your Son crucified. And You tell us to go out and share that message with the world. And Father, that is our own foolishness to bear. May we have the same courage and boldness, trust in You that the saints of old had. Lord, help us to be passionate about the message of the cross, bold to share it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.